everyone. I'm Denise Garth, Chief Strategy Officer at Majesco, and you're listening to the Future of Insurance Industry Leaders podcast series. Follow along as I interview the best and brightest leaders in the insurance industry and insure tech landscape to bring you the latest in digital transformation, innovation, industry trends, challenges, and opportunities, as well as next-gen technologies. We use our experience to anticipate what's next without losing sight of what's now. Stay tuned to find out your next now. Welcome everybody to the Future of Insurance podcast series. I'm thrilled to have Manish Shah, our President and Chief Product Officer, back with me again for part two talking about technology and our strategy and innovation. So welcome back, Manish. Thank you, Denise. Thanks for having me back again. Very excited. We really had a great conversation, product strategy, execution of that strategy, technical architecture, and roadmap. And all of that really leads to an area that you and I, I know, are equally passionate about, and that is innovation, about continuous innovation. That's really become a cornerstone of our strategy. Talk about what that means, how does it happen, and how does it embrace change and adaptation into the marketplace when you're thinking about innovations into our products, Manish? Uh That is a very, very interesting subject. And to be honest with you, the answer is very simple. And the answer for continuous innovation is never be satisfied. I know it goes against all the Zen theory and all, but let me tell you this thing that we have built some And I'm sure a lot of people have built something very, very amazing, but it's never perfect and it will never be perfect. And I think that the way we think about it is how can we do better? That doesn't mean we didn't do a good job. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't celebrate what we have. But instead of thinking innovation is something as a reactionary measure or something where you are sort of following the suit Thinking of that as a cycle that goes up and down, think we think that you know innovation should be seen as a day-to-day operation, which means that every day we look and we say what we are doing, how can we evolve it, how we can incrementally, sometimes even you know revolutionary, but most of the time evolutionary, you know, innovate more and more so that we get the benefit. You know, to be very very simply saying. It's really a continuous improvement and it's an improvement of the value to customers for being not satisfied of what it can be and believing in it that it can be better and just keep at it. That's pretty much how we operate and that's what I believe is can embrace the even culture for continuous innovation. Yeah, innovation is never done. I remember talking to somebody a number of years ago and they said, well, that innovation is all done. We don't need innovation anymore. We've already innovated. And I kind of thought to myself, oh my, with a, with a changing customer base and with changing technology, shoot, you got to have innovation going on all the time. There's always a room for improvement. So we've done a lot with innovation in a lot of the new technology that we've em- embedded into our solutions or new capabilities or new solutions, quite frankly, that really provide a lot of examples of innovation and how those innovations were really a, a response to adapting to market and technology shifts. Let's talk about five of those, Manish. I picked out 
generative AI, the hottest topic going into 2024, was hot in 2023, continues to be. Uh, Low-code, no-code platforms, that continues to be a topic of conversation. APIs, I think, are finally coming into their own cloud. And then also what we've done with ISO capabilities, because it's one thing to kind of keep up to date. It's the approach that you took with your team that really kind of differentiates very much out into the marketplace. So why don't you talk through those five? Yeah, sure. You know, happy to. So let me start more chronologically. (laughs) ISO capabilities has been probably there since the beginning. But to my point is we continue to innovate in that. So our view on ISO or NCCI, any, you know, basically the bureau products that we do is that first and foremost, long time ago, I read a paper that how much it cost to do, to implement one circular. And that cost what like absurd. And I'm not saying that's wrong. It just was absurd. And that basically saying, no, there has to be a better way to do that. And our approach, the way we went with it is that, you know what? So many customers actually have to implement the same circular. So why not provide them a simple update? Very much like how TurboTax will provide a state update, for example, when you're filing your taxes. It's no development work needed, just sort of over the air kind of an update that you can provide them. And granted that every customer will have their own way of activating or adopting those ISO circulars for certain writing companies, for certain states on a certain effective date. So there are some customer parameters and they may or may not actually, you know, adopt all the circular updates. Those things vary by customer. However, a circular is fundamentally a, you know, bureau circulars. So what we did is we basically said, okay, we should be able to provide a circular update to our customers on a monthly basis for the circulars that are going to be effective 90 to 120 days in advance. And then once the customer gets it, why don't we just make a simple wizard for them to say, hey, this is the list of the circulars that you have not adopted. Would you like to adapt for a certain underwriting company or a state on on which date? And they do that. And at that point, those circulars become effective it also detects if there were any specific configurations were done that actually creates a conflict with those uh, circulars and automatically ask them if they still want to preserve their sort of custom configuration or they want to be overridden with uh, now that the new circular is there. So all those things we try to say, how do we put it in business thing users? Because not only that it reduces the cost, but what we heard is sometimes not being able Stop the ISO or NCCI circulars in time not only creates a compliance issues, but it also creates a competitive disadvantage for not being able to take, you know, make use of better language on the documents or forms or some of the rate revisions. So that's why we continue to evolve. So where we are so glad that where we are right now, that we manage pretty much all ISO and CCI lines. And our customers get those updates like clockworks and they're able to adopt those things so quickly and so efficiently that it really differentiates and helps their business. So that's more on the ISO capability. And again, like, you know, as I said, you could say that we have ISO capability, but as I said, we don't get satisfied with what we have and we keep improving it. And that's an example of it. Same thing we did with cloud. Our cloud journey started long, long before we used to call it cloud. 
but we used to believe that there has to be a better way where how can we instead of selling pipes and spouts how can we just basically tell people that they can open the tap and they get a water that's how we used to use we didn't have the word sas and cloud back then and we <laughs> <used to> believe <laughs> seriously those words help actually but we always saying you know what oh, wouldn't it be great for customers to not worry about all those complexities behind the scene and they can just simply you know conduct their business if that platform was available and then we started sort of experimenting with that model and then have the private data centers and from the private data center we went into the public data center vm models and from that vm models we went into the cloud native you know containerizations microservices and so on so again that's been a journey those journeys may look like that it took long time but that's exactly what the design is for we do take long time because it takes time to evolve because it takes time for people to try find out you know what works what doesn't and that's why we all always started early so it's again one of the early adopter of cloud one of the early adopter of apis as well as i mentioned in the previous podcast by the way manish remember the introduction of the apis remember one of our user group conferences and the live demonstration with some of the partners with the apis absolutely the and drone i flying around the room everything it was amazing and i'll tell you denise you know as much as there is an excitement yet the api adoption in our industry is still very low and there is a lot yeah. of room for opportunity there is many opportunities for our industry to strengthen its solutions by actually embracing the api mindset but i think we're on the right track with that i think you know low code no code and you know to be honest with you again you know words right new words come along and it has different meanings but at the end of the day what we wanted to do is we call it low code no code you know long after we actually envisioned and built it a platform that will allow our customers to build something quickly to build something cheaply to change it on the fly that's really what the objectives are but when i hear that okay it's a low code no code platform and it will take 2 years to implement i mean i scratch my head then how is that a low code no code platform right Kind of the opposite. I, I kind of, yeah, I mean, you know, we got to put two and two together, saying that okay, if it is low code, no code platform. Again, I don't think low code, no code platform is a solution for every problem either. I think there's another mistake that we should not make. As I talked about, no architecture is suited for every uh, objectives. Same thing. Not low code, no code is not suited for a extremely complex, extremely compute intensive, you know, algorithms, things like that. It doesn't make sense. You'll end up writing a lot of code in a low code platform, which is even more inefficient than actually writing a code in itself. So there are purposes, there are use cases, especially building an engagement layer. It's a great use case for a low code, no code. Saying that, how do you build a digital experiences on that? because you know that you're going to have to change this thing very very quickly it gets stale very quickly you have to learn from our ab testing that how customers are engaging with it so the point is the turnover of changes on digital engagement experience and digital experiences is so high that you want a platform that can actually give you something a very quick turnaround but at the same time it doesn't require that level of complexity and computing where it will bear overhead So I think that's how we started out and we said you know what we're going to have a low code no code platform which we are super proud of we call it digital first but we believe that that is really for addressing some very specific use cases like building digital portals 
that's one use case building some really you know new world insurance products something like embedded insurance so i think those are the use cases that can be you know brought to life very very quickly and then the customers can continue to refine them very cost effectively <laughs> and the last thing is obviously the talk of the town it takes a lot of my mind share in nowadays and is generative ai look i think it is an absolutely amazing innovation that the world has seen. A lot of companies, large companies, whether you call it Microsoft, you call it Google, you name any any large big tech, I think they're all in, in this trend. No re- and, and there's no surprise why. In fact, if you look at it, the AI has not been a new you know, kid in the block, but it's a new AI that actually brought that AI for a common man to understand that what an AI can do. And I think that that's a big, big boost. So the way we are looking at it is that we look at it as an AI strategy and generative AI is one part of our AI strategy. And our AI strategy is really tied as an embedded AI within our products. So we don't see it as separately as I mentioned in last podcast that it's a big, big mistake to see them as a two disconnected strategies. So what we have done from uh, AI strategy perspective is uh, three primary things. One is generative AI. And as part of the generative AI, we have partnered with Microsoft and their open AI relationship in terms of bringing what we call it a co-pilot, which is basically something is just like the name says, it's not, it's going to be a co-pilot. You are still at the pilot seat and you're still driving, yeah. but it can make your life super simple. It can actually allow you to see things in and inquire things in a generative actions, in a natural language. It can allow you to, you know, perform some of the tasks, even so be transactions and so forth without actually spending. So this is, I believe, is a tremendous productivity booster. In fact, it is so so much of a productive booster that the economists think that it can have a significant impact on GDP in coming years. Clearly, it's a huge thing. And we started and we introduced the co-pilot in October. But that's one part of our AI strategy. The second part is what we call it is a our own proprietary model. So there is a generative AI, which is a very generic commercial AI. The second AI is something that is a very niche AI, something that is very targeted and it requires a special set of data. So it's not a large language model, but it's a very, very specific data model. So for example, we have over 100 million of property survey images where professional risk adjuster have actually tagged them, which one has what hazard. So using those hundreds million of professionally tagged images, we have built a model on those properties where you can put an address. We can actually fetch those images that is as latest working with several partners of ours. And then we are able to apply those data science model on those images that was trained using our own proprietary 100 million plus images to identify that what kind of risk this property has so that they can be mitigated, they can be controlled in advance. We call it a property intelligence. That's an AI or machine learning. Same thing, we did subrogation for example, where all these claims notes, their natural language, they are a, a, a huge, huge, big source of information where by just looking at it, you can identify that what is the potential for subrogation for certain claims. This is a huge leakage point where some of the subrogation opportunities are missed. Having an AI actually point you saying that I really think 
that this one has a higher subrogation, you know, potential, which maybe either a junior adjuster or heavily work, heavily loaded adjuster might have missed actually can help improve the bottom line. So multiple of such models, what we call it our own proprietary model is combined with the commercial generative AI actually enriches the overall decision-making and user experience. And the third component of our AI strategy is partner AI. So there are so many other very, very nice AI models that is targeted for insurance because they had data or they had a focus in that areas. And it's a shame not to include that in our overall AI strategy to provide a fullest AI benefit to our customers. So partner AI model, proprietary AI model, and generative AI models combined together is how we see it. But really the important thing is it's not about having them separately or having those niche capabilities, but blending them within the user experience at the point of sales or point of service system as use cases where it is so seamless that users can feel the power, but they don't need to really learn anything about it. That embedded aspect is really critical because it allows people to really leverage those capabilities from day one, rather than having to wait for some type of an integration and then keeping the upgrades all there. So it's just constantly an innovative process and Manish. Absolutely. I mean, this is so exciting. The possibilities are limitless in this. Every single releases, we do two releases a year. We do it in spring, we do it in fall, one in April, one in October. And since last October now, foreseeable future, every release is just going to expand the impact of AI into our products. I did a podcast with, I think it was with Adrian Jones, and he's one of the InsureTech influencers. He believes that Gen AI, and there's others who have said this, that it has the potential to impact the industry no different than what the introduction of the internet did. Yeah, as I said, you know, there are really bold statements being made. Sundar Pichai of Google CEO compared the generative AI as an innovation by a mankind as important as fire. Is that kind of a role it's going to play? So, I hadn't heard that one. That was a, a powerful one. Yeah, that's a powerful one. So I personally believe that everyone would be hard-pressed to not consider that part of your you know, business going forward, how to make your operations better, how can you make your you know, decisions better. And this definitely has to be a, on top of the roster for even a, a strategic discussion at the board level. Absolutely. Kind of tying back to what we talked about in part one and these innovations, why can we adapt with so many innovations so quickly, Manish? What's your view on that? Because uh, we're not afraid to change. We're <laughs> really not afraid to change. We know that if we don't change, somebody else will change things for us. So we rather change ourselves because we think change is inevitable. We're not necessarily adapting to innovations because it's a cool widget. Let's just make sure that we're all aligned. Like, you know, we are never a just technology driven company. We are very purpose driven company. And we are basically saying that, are we seeing an application for this technology? Are we seeing that are any of this market trends has an impact on you know, what the business looks like today? And if so, uh, let's start small. We're gonna, and then the reason why we make those changes quick, you know, because here's the thing, you know, change is very, very hard. Look, look, you know, anybody who's been in a corporate world understands that change always face resistance. Change is always like gets a lot of resistance against it. So our way of doing things is that we want to have micro dosing of change. In those micro dosing we try really, really small. What ends up happening is that we, for because we are trying something so small of something 
which could be so big is we don't have to go through a lot of bureaucratic processes that happens in the corporate world of securing the budget, approving a project, things like that. We're just able to do those things and by carving out a some capacity because people are excited to work on those new stuff. Once it gets to a point where it looks like that it's going to stick, I think there's a natural support for that kind of a project that gets emerged within the organization. We also get a very, very quick and timely and early feedback from the marketplace, from our customers, from analysts, other constituents to see that, okay, you know, looks like we're in the right direction or we kind of are too ahead of the time or we're totally wrong. Either way, I think that our conviction gets more and more robust. And as our conviction gets more robust, I think that it even takes more steam into progressing it. To answer your question, it's very simple. It's like we try something very, very small in a, in a micro scale and just give it a try. And if it works, it builds a natural support. It automatically becomes a priority for an organization where everyone understands why it is instead of just kind of going through a traditional project management processes of approving a budget, creating a business cases and so forth. Yeah, it's, it's what Chankamu said. Think big, start small and learn fast. Uh, when he presented at one of our conferences a number of years ago, and I know you and he had a really detailed conversation around that concept at that time, Manish. And I warned him at that time that I'm going to steal a lot of things from him, that suggests patient urgency. So, you know, thanks to Chanka for all those words. That makes exactly. my life easier to explain it. <laughs> one of the things that I think I believe that not every organization does this well, when they go through a merger and acquisition, we've acquired a number of companies over the last three to four years, the solutions, the technology products associated with those. And one of the things we do is we evaluate how we can leverage that technology, what they bring to the table that's unique that we want to be able to leverage, and then what do we have that we can bring to them to adapt into their product portfolio to accelerate innovation and to support customers and to drive more growth. Talk about that approach and the examples of how this has created greater value for our market and our customers, both our existing customers and those customers that we've acquired as well, Manish. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, M&A is, everybody is scared of M&A. <laughs> yeah. You know, there are data, there are stats in terms of, you know, how many M&A actually fails. And I can't imagine that if you go back and look at, we actually, M&A has been a huge part of our growth and how we have been able to successfully manage and, you know, grow those, you know, acquired assets within Majesco always, like I don't see a single failed m and for ourselves. That make me actually look back and think that why is that? Like, what's it that we are doing it different? I think first and foremost is instead of looking at it as m and think of it as just a expansion of your capabilities. And those capabilities doesn't have to be in always forms of software. It could be in form of people as well right? In form of, you know, what kind of market that you're getting into and expertise that you're getting from it. So it could be a capabilities in terms of expertise as well. Now, there are two ways for an organizations to grow. One is an organic, which everybody feels comfortable with it, but there are risks associated with it. You can build an organic product and you can fail. And that product didn't really take off uh, into the market or you got it wrong. At the same time, it takes time in order to get there. It takes time to learn all those things. So all those things that we talked about it, 
as you saw, you know, how early we started on cloud or how early we started on low code, no code, all those things is five plus, seven plus, sometimes 10 plus year journey actually get to a meaningful value of that. And there is a time element that, you know, everyone should consider. If we find an asset, which we think is then cut short the 10 plus years window for us to learn because it comes with all these learnings and has been matured and seasoned over the period, then sure, why not? You know, why not we cut short that time frame and have that inorganic or acquisitive approach where we can expand our capabilities? So that's how we see M&A as like how you expand those capabilities. Now, one thing to keep in mind is, you know, sure, there are aspects because there'll be a little bit different culture or, you know, we try to look at as much cultural fit upfront as possible, but still, you know, there's always going to be a microcultures within each organizations that exist. There are going to be a different technology platforms that can exist as well which will almost always there. Oftentimes there are some functional overlap also exist with what you have. And that's completely normal. I don't think we should ever be shy for it because our approach in that case is that we talked about it, that from an architectural perspective, I don't think that there is one architecture that works. I think that a one architecture works best for certain things, but not necessarily for everything. So having a little bit different architecture, having a little bit, you know, technology may not be an entirely bad as long as it is serving a certain purpose. So that doesn't create an issue for us at all. What actually helps us is that when we bring those assets in, we learn about, you know, and we are still sort of working at smaller companies within Majesco. So it's not really that a, a hundred people organizations kind of getting into a 2000 people organization. They may feel it that way, but we try to make that look easier make them feel easier by immediately integrating them with an overall thing. So we like to build an overall vision. We don't just like to say it's a tuck-on acquisitions. Even so, it may be tuck-on. We don't want to operate it as in silo. We want to integrate both the people and the products in an overall operations and have them all charged by the common vision of why we did this thing. And where do you think we can see ourselves together in coming year and two years and so forth. So I think that building that camaraderie within the team and basically attaching them to a common bigger picture has been a very, very successful approach in our case where we have been able to pull in all these acquisitions, not just in terms of them to be successful financially, which is really important, but it also in terms of providing a lot more capabilities so, for example, when we acquired uh, Utilant, which was a loss control, the first thing we did is that, okay, how do we integrate? Now, they have, you know, there have been a standalone loss control. We continue to still, you know, sell that as a standalone loss control system. But we wanted to make sure that when our customers who has our property policy admin system, what do they get more if they had our loss control? So we pre-integrated that. We also didn't want to just integrate. We wanted to deeply integrate that. Then all the insight that was there into the loss control system, we wanted to bring in into making a policy decisions. So we made a whole feedback loop around it. So essentially, we what we got out of that is not just policy admin, not just loss control, but we had a one plus one that was more than two. We got something that is not possible through partnership or just through an API calls, but it requires a deep user interface level integration 
where it gets very immersed experience. So some of those applications are like that. So from our perspective, MNA is not as different in terms of expanding our capabilities as if we were doing it organically. It just gives us a lot more acceleration. Sure, it comes with other challenges that we by now have learned how to you know, handle it from several acquisitions we did so far. As we kind of look forward, Manish, there's so much yet unfolding from a technology perspective, just in the broad technology space, but specifically for insurance. What new technologies are you looking at that you think are going to be important for the industry in the next two to three years without sharing our secret sauce, obviously, Manish? <laughs> Listen, so, I mean, we talked about it. I still think that all the technology related to AI, that is going to be changing every day. As a high-level bucket, you can call it an AI, you can call it a generative AI, but I think that that's a technology to watch for, that how it evolves. I think that will evolve into um, not just simple language model. I think this is going to evolve into vision models, which already is. That changes the whole game, actually, in terms of how and what an AI can do by just looking at something, not necessarily deciphering that information and inputting it, but just by looking at something. So think about from that perspective, the limitless opportunities that is there across the entire policy building and claims that of our core mission critical operations that with the vision embedded where this can actually go. I personally think, Denise, is where the technology in the two, three months, especially in the insurance industry, the way I see is I don't think that there is going to be a super big trend that we have to sort of adjust to it beyond just the AI piece. I think that's going to be there for the next two, three years as in the big trend and stay on the top of it. But I think that we have to use technology to do everything better. As you mentioned early on that, you know, the modern system, the cloud system has still not kind of delivered the benefits that once people have hoped for. I think that this is the area where the technology needs to get more robust. While we can call it a configurable system, can is it really simple? Is it something really, you know, providing that flexibility, that speed, that agility, you know, takes away the challenges of an upgrade, uses the TCO. So there's a lot of promise out there in terms of, you know, the software like ours that is constantly innovating. But I think that I would definitely see the next two, three years is like sort of making things so better that it can actually, you know, start delivering a very, very tangible benefits. Really optimizing the technology that we've all adopted and are implementing. Absolutely. I think some of those things will lead to improvement in the tool sets, for example. Some of them will lead to an improvement into how things are delivered as a services or CI CDs. So there are a lot of ways things can be done, but at the end of the day, how can we optimize what we have? It may not be uh, sexy, but it's sure fundamental to the operations of insurance. I'll tell you the results will be sexy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm going to wrap this up, Manish, and I always ask everybody at the very end, no pressure, but we've only had a handful out of almost 100 podcasts now. If you could use one word or phrase to describe the future of insurance, what would it be and why? I would say unprecedented. I don't think we've had that one, Manish. Okay. The reason why I say unprecedented is because I feel that the next 10 years in the insurance, we will see so many changes that we have not seen since its inception over in 18th century. I think the speed of change, the change in the business model, change in the operating model, change in the underlying technology, 
and amount of capital that is actually going to come from capital markets for the investment is already driving. But I think that it's going to even further accelerate the change and allow us to rethink the entire insurance from ground up. And what we will see probably as an insurance in next 10 years will look very, very different. That means I call it, that's why I call it unprecedented because I don't think we have seen that kind of a change before. The opportunities I feel that are limitless, both, it's a perfect storm. I mean, in a good way that you have all kind of boundless application of the technology and increased interest from capital markets for investment into the insurance and insurance technology industry which is a very, very, you know, effective combination. Those things happen on the same time, basically screams for faster change, faster innovation, a lot of disruptions in a good way. But I think that that will help address a lot of, lot of things that we think that insurance industry have not seen before. That's why I call it unprecedented. Yeah, and you couple that with the, the change on just the business side with new buyers, increasing risk, and the complexity of risk, we really do need to change from a business perspective. And so your unprecedented aspect of capital and technology, applying it to that really has the opportunity. I think something that I've been talking about lately is helping to close the protection gap and close the, that customer expectation gap. And what an opportunity that is for us as an industry, Manish. You know, exactly. So think about this way, right? I mean, you have actual demand or an environment that is ripe for change, you have enablers like the new technologies that can actually help facilitate those change. And then you have all this interest from capital markets that can fund those change. That tells us it's going to change and it's going to change big. It's going to change fast. And that's why I think that what we're going to see is something we've not seen before. Well, Manish, it's always a fun conversation with you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to provide your perspectives and your insights and your expertise share back out to our customers and the industry at large. It's going to be a, a fun ride going into 2024 and beyond, Manish. Yeah, thank you, Denise. I mean, it's, it's always an honor to chat with you. It's never enough. Uh, time flies by, but love to share my views. I'm super excited going into 2024 that how we can help the future of insurance. Me too. It's an unprecedented time, Manish. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Thanks, Thank Manish. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode of Future of Insurance Industry Leaders podcast. Subscribe to our market-leading podcast series available wherever you get your podcast from. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in the next time.